an unconditionally loving God would send someone to hell and to suffer eternal punishment. And all I can say is, yep, I can't fathom it, right? But I'm not God. He's got greater wisdom than me. He's got greater understanding than me. Actually, he owns me. He owns every single one of us. There's nothing in this on this planet or there's nothing in the universe that he does not own. He has the right to do with his creation as he wills. And we should just be grateful that he's given us a possibility of salvation. But they don't want to repent. They just want to abuse God for being unjust because they don't understand it. You know, you, you could do more. Who knows you could do more? Who knows you could pray more? Who knows you could read the scriptures more? Who knows you could reach out to people more? Who knows you could put God first more? Who knows there is so much more you can do? And the moment you die, you're going to wish that you could come back and live your life over again and do it all again, but this time fully committed. I want to preach it now so you can get on fire for God and say, I'm going to live for him with all of my being now so that when I die, I don't have a regret. I don't have to think, I wish I could go back and start it all over again. So you've got to keep Jesus foremost in your mind. You've got to keep the judgment seat of Christ uppermost in your mind. And like Leonard Ravenhill said, keep one eye on eternity at all times. One eye on eternity. Stay focused. Could you turn in your Bibles to Romans 5, verses 1 to 2. Verse 1, it says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. I'm sure a few of you got different translations and it says much the same thing but in slightly varied ways. But I want to just have a quick look at this and then I've got a um, fairly uh, comprehensive sermon that I want to get through in the sense of a lot of scripture that you're going to have to skip through. And I want you all to stay with me in the scriptures. Keep finding the pages that we're reading so that you can keep on reflecting on what I'm talking about um, as, as we go through it. But it says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God. So we've been justified, and how have we been justified? Through faith. Not through our abilities, our works, or anything that we've done. So Jesus Christ died on the cross, amen? He died on the cross for our sins. He, he was raised from the dead, so we know that he has eternal life. And he promises us that those of us that believe in him shall be raised up at the last days as well but also our spirit will live for eternity so when we die it says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord so the moment we die if we believe in Jesus Christ and we hold to our faith and we've lived in him and we are living in him we go straight to be with him and that is through faith that that happens it's not through works what I mean is you can cut as many lawns as you want for every old granny for free (laughs) That's not going to get you into heaven. Now, the issue that's happened in the 20th, 20, 20th and the 21st century is they've, you know what they've thrown in as a work? You know what they call works? 
They call holiness works. They say, what are you trying to work your way into heaven now by being good? And this is, that's, that's in conflict with Scripture because the Scriptures clearly tell us that we've got to live in righteousness. We've got to walk by the Spirit. We've got to be holy if we want to see the Lord. The Scriptures constantly tell us to live a righteous and holy life. Amen? Why? Because Jesus died because sin was so bad. He died so that we wouldn't die because of it. That's how bad sin was. Now, he doesn't want us to continue to live in sin the moment we accept him as Lord and Savior, does he? So we've been justified through faith, and that is through accepting him that his blood has cleansed us of all of our sin. Amen? We've been washed, we've been purified, we've been made holy. And the moment you stand there and sincerely repent to God and say, God, just say you've lived, as a Christian you've lived a sinful life, you've got to stand before God and say, Lord, forgive me. Who's, who's done that since they've been a Christian? I hope every hand goes up. Yeah. Who knows that Christians aren't perfect? Yeah. <laughs> Ben's went straight up. That's good, Ben. <laughs> See, he's like that tax collector that's justified before God. Um, we, we, are, we, we continue to sin. Should we, as Christians, should we continue to sin? No. Right? He died so that we could, and gave us the spirit so we could overcome the sin nature. So we've got to continually live with our minds set on being holy for him. And what I mean by that is it's not that it's, it's up to us, right? We have to have a mindset on the Spirit in the sense that the Spirit's got to grab us, the Spirit's got to take control of our life so that we can walk a holy life. Because who knows that in the flesh you cannot walk a holy life? You know, the things you want to do, you don't do. The things you don't want to do, you do. But the, ho the Holy Spirit is sort of helps us to do it if we are obedient to the Holy Spirit. Now what I'm saying, in, in many respects, they'll call this legalism, but it's not legalism, it's scripturalism. Right? It's in the scriptures. I've only come to these conclusions because it's all through the scriptures. I keep saying, Lord, if I've got something wrong, please reveal it to me. And the more I look in the scriptures, the more it hits me in the face. That's why last week I started that New Testament survey of every scripture related to holiness and related to salvation. I'm not leaving any stone unturned anymore in relation to this, this doctrine because I think it's the most messed up doctrine in Christianity presently and it's got to be cleared up. So we went through the book of Peter last week, didn't we? 1 Peter. How many scriptures did I pull up? tons just in one peter so you're thinking how long is this survey going to last but we're going to go through two peter we're going to go through one john now one john has got a lot to say on this subject actually one john is probably in my opinion one of the toughest books in the bible in the new testament especially really really tough hard-nosed christianity tells you as it is straight up how we should be as christians doesn't hold any punches actually I don't hear a huge amount of ministers go near the book of 1 John because of its hardline teaching. But it's true Christianity. John was the most, if you think about John as, as, as the apostle, was probably, well, they said he was the beloved, he was the closest to Jesus out of all of them. And the reason why that is, that he was closest to Jesus, if you think about it, and I've, you've probably heard me say this a number of times in the church, but 
John was with John the Baptist before Jesus' ministry began. So he'd sat under the ministry of John the Baptist. Now that would have been powerful, wouldn't it? Who would like to sit under the ministry of John the Baptist? Yeah. Now he was with John the Baptist and he was hearing about this Messiah that was going to come. So he was under that teaching. Then the Messiah came and John the Baptist said, there he is. And what did John do? He got up. See you, John. Thanks for that. Straight off to be with Jesus. Right? So then he sat, John was under the ministry of Jesus for three and a half years. And then at the cross, what happened? Jesus says um, to, uh, to his mother, this is your son and this is your mother. So Jesus gave his mother to John. So now John is with Mary, the blessed, most blessed woman on earth. He's now under the ministry of Mary. And he gets taught all the different things that we would love to know. What Jesus was like as a baby. What Jesus was... Don't you think that would be the first thing that John would start asking him? What was he like when he was two years old? You know, just amazing, you know, saying incredible things and speaking. And he's got this incredible intelligence and can speak articulate words from a young age. Did he come out of the womb speaking? Was he, you know, I don't know. You would ask these things. Would you want to know God in the flesh as a baby? So he, he found these things out. He found out when Jesus stubbed his toe and cried and, you know, different things that he did and, and, and stuff. And then what happened? John went, was persecuted pretty heavily and he ended up on the island of Patmos. And what happened on Patmos? He received a great revelation. Yeah. And he saw Jesus in glory. He saw Jesus eternally past. And he saw Jesus eternally future. He saw the king of kings. He saw him in all his glory. So John, out of all the apostles, got to recognize or see Jesus at every point in every extreme, in a sense, or at least hear stories about Jesus. And so to me, when you go to the book of 1 John and the book of John, that's the, one of the Gospels, um, to me, probably I would, I endear towards them more than any other book. And 1 John, if you really want to get into the doctrine of our salvation, start looking there, but I'm going to be going through it very soon. Okay, so it says here again, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God. If you don't have peace with God, I want you to come up and speak to me after this service. If you're unsettled, if you don't feel like you're saved, if you feel like you're, um, you know, after all the teachings that you've received from Christianity, that you're pretty confused and mixed up and you don't even know if you're saved, we've got to have a chat. Because can you have assurance of salvation? Yeah. Now, the way I always assure myself of salvation is when in my morning prayers, I say, Lord, forgive me for everything that I've done. Wash me, make me whiter than snow. Cleanse me right now. Cleanse me right now because I want to be clean before you. And at that moment, I'm cleansed. I'm purified. It doesn't mean that I had lost my salvation. I just don't want to allow sin to creep into my life to the point where it starts to set a wedge between me and God. Because does the Bible, according to what you've heard me teach, have you, can, is there any scriptures in here that says that the moment you accept Jesus as, as Lord and Savior that you can't lose that salvation? Does anyone believe that they can't lose their salvation? If you do, that's not scriptural. 
That's a, that's a 20th century doctrine. But there are plenty of scriptures. I've done sermons galore on this subject. There's a scripture which says, Remain in me, and if my words remain in you, you'll bear much fruit. Then it says, But if you don't remain in me, you'll be picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. So what does that mean? When it says remain, is he talking to someone that's never been in Christ? You can't remain in something unless you're in something, can you? So it's like remain in your marriage. Do not get unmarried. Remain in it, right? So you're married. So we're married. When we remain in Jesus, we're married to Jesus. We are in Jesus. And Jesus says, remain in me now. Stay married to me. Remain. It's pretty pretty simple, isn't it? It says, remain in me. He says, if you don't remain in me, so if you divorce me, you'll be picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. Cut and dry. That just destroys once saved, always saved. That doctrine. Then they say, well, if you, if, if you lose your salvation, you never had it in the first place. Who's heard that? Who's heard that? Oh, you've never had it in the first place. That's unscriptural. Because he would have said, he wouldn't have used the word remain then. He wouldn't have said remain in me. And that's only one scripture of about uh, probably in the vicinity of 50 to 60 scriptures that I can, I can quote you. That talk completely against the once saved, always saved doctrine. Now, I'll tell you the, the side effects, the, the problems with the once saved, always saved doctrine. If you tell a, a human, a fleshly human that's just turned to Jesus, that doesn't have a strong faith yet, if you tell them that no matter what you do, you can't lose your salvation, What's, what's that going to do to the mindset of that new Christian? It, they'll think, oh, really? That's fantastic. That's fantastic. So when the temptation comes on me to start drinking again in excess and start to do all the pagan things that I've always done, what am I going to do? I'm going to go off and do those things. Again, because I can't lose my salvation no matter what. And to me... It's corrupted the church. To me, that doctrine has corrupted the church and made it weak and flimsy and has made it unholy to the extreme, to the extreme where a lot of the time you can't tell Christians apart from pagans because they do the same things, they carry on the same way, they get involved in the same promiscuous things continuously. Christians are supposed to be lights on a hill. Today, many Christians are just as dark as the darkest people on the planet. And it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. And it's just because of it. The reason is this, is doctrine. Doctrine matters. Doctrine is incredibly important. Having the right doctrine from day one can make you a, a better Christian, make you a powerful Christian, make you a very effective Christian. So we've got to have our doctrines very, very clear in our mind so we don't stray, so we don't get easily led astray. <clears throat> so we've been justified through faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith. Now, if, if you consider yourself married to Jesus Christ, can you have peace in that? Can you have peace in that? Yeah. So have peace in it. Now, if you're living in an especially wicked life, don't have peace. Don't have peace. Because 
Jesus doesn't live that sort of life. If you're living a life that Jesus can't live, then let that be the guidestone for you. Let that be the thing that tells you you're on the wrong path. If you're doing stuff that you know that Jesus would never do, then you're in, you're in uh, jeopardy. Your, your eternal life's in jeopardy unless you turn it around. Amen? Now, there are, there's weight in sin. There's some sins that lead to judgment ahead of you. Who's read that in Scripture? There's sins that go to the judgment way ahead of you. And then there's sins that aren't as heavy and as weighty, like the sin of lack of prayer. Still, it's not good. We need to pray more. But who knows that when the further you go along as a Christian, you feel guilty and you actually repent because you haven't prayed enough. Yeah. Has, has anyone ever repented because of their lack of prayer? Yeah. Right? Now, when you're a new Christian, that would be bizarre to think because I'd be dealing with you know, drug addictions and you know, all sorts of heavy, heavy addictions from the world and they'll be thinking, you're, you're repenting because you haven't prayed last night. You know what I mean? So as we get along, now they're not, they're not, they don't put you into eternal jeopardy. But I can say one thing, if you live a Christian life and you don't have a prayer life, then you've got to ask the question, does Jesus know me and do I know Jesus? So there's that as well. But if you have an active prayer life and you miss a night or you miss a day or, or things like that, that's a different story. But I'm talking about on the whole, if you don't have a prayer life, then you've got to ask yourself the question, am I truly saved? Because a prayer life is a guarantee that you are saved. A prayer life will give you that peace, knowing that you have a, a relationship with Jesus Christ. Because that's why Jesus says, away from me, you evildoers, I never knew you. That's what he says to these Christians that he doesn't know. So if you want to get to know Jesus, pray. Amen. These are important things. Now I'm going I'm to continue with this. The eternal nature of the soul. Daniel 12.2. Who knows that the soul is eternal? And it says here, multitudes... Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, will awaken. Some will awaken to everlasting life and others to shame and everlasting contempt. So what they're saying is every single human that's ever lived will awaken. Every single soul that's ever lived on this planet, lived and died, will awaken, and it says here, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, and some to everlasting, to others to shame and everlasting contempt. So there's only two directions. One is eternal life with Jesus Christ, the other is eternal death. So it tells us that we have an eternal soul. We are all eternal. There is no as the Seventh-day Adventists teach that it's annihilation, you die and that's it. Well, if that's true, then that means that scripture's false. So what I'm going to listen to, either that scripture or should I listen to the Seventh-day Adventists? I think I'll go with the scripture. Because annihilation is not a doctrine of the Bible. Matthew 25, 46. Let's have a look here. Does Daniel carry weight in scripture? Yep. What about Jesus? Does Jesus carry weight in Scripture? Twenty-five, forty-six, and it says, "Then 
they will go away to eternal punishment. Is that annihilation? Is punishment annihilation? You know, this is, this is tough. The Bible is tough. Especially is it even tougher in the 21st century with the way that the world has been culturally manipulated to think. That if a Christian stands up and starts preaching a doctrine of hell, then they straight away just, just reject us completely and totally. Because it's just too hard. What a God who loves you know, an, a, a, an unconditionally loving God would send someone to hell and to suffer eternal punishment. And all I can say is, yep. <laughs> I, I, I can't fathom it, right? But I'm not God. He's got greater wisdom than me. He's got greater understanding than me. Actually, he owns me. He owns every single one of us. There's nothing in this, on this planet or there's nothing in the universe that he does not own. He has the right to do with his creation as he wills. And we should just be grateful that he's given us a possibility of salvation. But they don't want to repent. They just want to abuse God for being unjust because they don't understand it. And that's the exact reason why they deserve punishment because they're rebellious and they hate God and they deserve to be punished for hating God. 25.46 So then they will go away to eternal punishment but the righteous to eternal life. So the righteous will receive eternal life. So the soul is... Um, eternal. Amen. Now who knows about Solomon? Solomon had everything. He was the wisest man in the world and the richest man in the world. You imagine that. He was uh, blessed with wisdom beyond anyone. Incredible wisdom, but he was also blessed with riches beyond anyone. And he was blessed with more wives than anyone. 700 wives and 300 concubines, 1,000 women. Well, I don't think it's a blessing. It wasn't a blessing to him, by the way. <laughs> but that is unbelievable. Man, who could, who's got the time for that? <laughs> you walk, you get home late, and all 1,000 of them, where have you been? <laughs> Imagine that. That would just, just overwhelm you. <laughs> a 1,000 nagging wives. So. So 700 wives, 300 concubines. He had vineyards. He had his own vineyard. He had, and lots of them. He had a, a huge palace. He had herds and herds of animals. You know, incredible. Slaves. He even had a court that would sit when he walked in. So they would sit and they'd discuss things. And they're all in a, to do his will, his bidding. He ruled and he reigned. He had... Food in abundance, sounds like us in this, where we live now. He had drink in abundance. He had entertainment in abundance. He even had, you know, he'd, if he wanted comedians, he'd bring them in. He'd have his Jim Carrey's and his, you know, Robin Williams just come in and just perform just for him. He had it all. But after having all of that, he wrote these things. And let's just turn to Ecclesiastes. 114, it says, I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. He's not just seen them, he's experienced them. He's had, he's had experiences that many men will never have. 
and all of them are meaningless. A chasing after the wind. So after everything, everything that he had, it was all meaningless. Meaningless. Now I'm wondering at, at this moment whether he wrote that after he had fallen from grace because in, in, in the course of his life he actually turned away from God who gave him all that. And he started following the Baals and all the different gods of the different nations of the women that he married. He married women from other nations. And he said he got led astray to them. It led him away from God. It led him out of God's you know, uh, favor in a sense. And he started to um, fall into you know, the worship of other gods, of the gods of the people that he was with. So drugs and alcohol, if you get involved in that stuff, all that does is leads you down that path. You, you will eventually turn your back on God. And, and why I bring this up is because we all get tempted in many, many things. We've had people that are coming to church, and, and, and I've, I've talked to them in the past, that had come for a period of time and then telling me that they've slipped back on and started you know, taking crack and all that sort of stuff again. And I'm like, what? After all my preaching, I would have thought that you would be resisting that. But then it, they were falling back into it. So that's why I'm bringing this up. I want to I wanna ex- really come, come down hard on this, that that stuff is meaningless. You know you can teach it to your kids too. You can teach, don't take drugs, don't drink alcohol. And they can be the best kids and then at a certain age they get a certain group of friends and the next thing you know, they're into it. And it can take just one night and they turn their back on all of their lives, all the good teachings that you've given them. <laughs> yeah, no, they need to hear it. Yeah, I said to my son, he, he started his first day at high school, I said to him, now when you go to high school, I want you to do one thing, I want you to observe the kids that are smoking cigarettes at, at high school. Just observe them and watch what happens to them. And uh, he's... he's I didn't know he did it, but he actually did it. He started, and I said, one thing you do, just promise me you won't smoke with them. Don't start smoking cigarettes. Anyway, as the years rolled by, I remember it was near the end of year 12, he, said, he just said to me one morning, Dad, do you remember you asked me to just watch all the kids that are smoking the cigarettes? And I said, yep. And he goes, well, I started doing that. And by around year 9 and early year 10, they were all, nearly every one of them was smoking pot and started to take the harder drugs. Some of them started to take harder drugs. By around year 10, year 11, half of them at least had dropped out of school. As they went a little bit further, like the ones that actually got to year 12 and continued through year 12, they, just about every one of them failed year 12. They could not maintain it. Now they uh, have left school, many of them now, uh, sitting in their rooms playing computer games all day and I've just given up all hope of doing anything. Right? So following that life and, 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 and leading a life of drug, you know, that leads you into drug taking and, and all that sort of stuff. And it starts with cigarette smoking in high school. That's usually just about all of them. John said just about everyone that started smoking cigarettes, they ended up going harder and harder and harder. And now we've got an epidemic you know, Bill and I were in the city a few months back and we were walking down Rundle, Rundle Street and we were looking down the side alleys and here's, you know, uh, girls and guys, they're just all like bent over and they were sick and, 
and like these are like young kids, and they're all like um, you know stuffed up on drugs and stuff. And I'm looking at them, going, "Oh man, what has happened? What is happening to this to these kids?" And it's this generation that has it tough. It has it tough because it's getting promoted at a level that we don't realise. The clubs that they go to promote it. There's a lot of like. Um, even just John the other day was telling me there's clubs you go into that you, if you want the drugs that everyone's on, you go up to the bouncer and the bouncer will get you some. You pay for it through the bouncer. It's all underground. You, it's not allowed to happen. But you go to the bouncer and say, I want the drugs that these guys are all dancing on and they get it for you. And then you join in on the party. So it's, it's corrupt. You know? And this is the world we live in. But it's all meaningless. Who knows? That drugs will just eventually destroy you. It'll destroy your chances of succeeding in school. It'll it destroy your chances of getting a decent job in the future. It'll destroy everything that you are as a person. It'll change you. We know a guy who was the most placid, beautiful man you'd, you'd meet. And he started taking, was it, uh, was it ice? Um, I don't know if you know who I'm talking about. Anyway, he ended up raging, a raging bull, and he's a big boy. He ended up a raging bull taking this drug. He went from being the most placid, beautiful, humble man you'd ever meet to a raging bull. And he started to um, get in fights all the time, and the next thing you know, he, he was in this car chase, and there was a whole thing that happened, and he ends up in prison. And I had a chat with him. I've talked to him about God. I witnessed to him for about an hour at a party and he, 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 he'd already accepted Jesus in prison because someone there ministered. He said, I woke up in prison and I'd come down from all the drugs and everything else that he was on and he's in prison and he's, he's looking around and he's going, what has happened to me? What have I allowed to happen to me? And what he did, he allowed drugs into his life. And he allowed these terrible drugs, which are called party drugs, but they just they messed him up. And he ended up sitting there in prison. And then he, he got out, and he had a bit of time out, and then he got another sentence, and he had to spend two or three months more in there. And I saw him the other day, and he's just got out again. And he's, a, he's back to his normal self. He's a, he's a beautiful man, but now he's got a record. Now... If anyone was going to hire him, they'd think twice before hiring him. If they got what, this guy's got a, a record and this guy hasn't, you'd go with that guy, even if that guy's not as good as this guy. But they're not going to—they're not wise to know. So does drugs destroy? They destroy, and they destroy absolutely. And Ecclesiastes tells us that all of these things, everything, all these seemingly good things are destructive to us and they're meaningless in the end. Ecclesiastes 12.1, let's turn there quickly. Remember your creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come. Does the, the, as we get older, do days of trouble come? Yeah, things get tougher and tougher, don't they? Um, and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. Are we all going to get old? Do we all get old? Yep. We all start young and we all get old. And I remember Vina's grandmother, she was in her 80s, wasn't she? And she was 
sick and not feeling very good all the time. She was a Christian lady, and she would just always cry out to God, why are you leaving me here? Just take me already. She was needed. She had camel knees. She had callous knees. She prayed incessantly for her family all the time, always on her knees praying for her family. And during those, those years when she was around, and the reason why God left her, and she didn't pro- quite probably work this out, the family was blessed. I tell you, there was no trouble in the family. The family was covered by a woman that prayed continuously. She was powerful. And no kidding, nearly to the day and to the, in, within the month of her leaving, trouble came upon the family. And I said to the family at that time, I said, guys, we've got to fill in the gap. And it might take you know, five or six of us to fill in the gap that she's left. But since then, the family's never been exactly the same. It's been very affected. And, and I can see it, and Vina can see it, just the difference, right? A praying woman. But there will come a day when we'll say, I find no pleasure in this time on this earth. Before the sun... I won't, no, I actually won't go any further because I want to try to get a little bit more of the sermon done. Then Ecclesiastes, just a, a few verses forward, and it says this in th- verse 13. It says, Now that all has been heard, So what he's saying is the concluding after all of life, everything that he's experienced, remember this man had experienced more pleasures than we could ever possibly dream of. Now all has been heard, here is the conclusion of the matter. And he says, fear God. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And we, that means we've got to be righteous. We've got to stay holy. We've got to live for him. We've got to put him first. We've got to put God first. Whatever we put before God will one day bite us. Solomon put one thing before God, then he put another thing before God, and then he put another thing before God. And before he knew it, he wasn't following God anymore. He was following all these other gods that he had built up in his life. And you know, we all do it. You know, we take up hobbies, we take up interests, we take up friendships, we take up all sorts of things that lead us away from God. If we didn't, this church would be full to overflowing. You know, the amount of people that come through these doors and said, I want to be a member of this church. And for whatever reason, they get letter, they get more important things come up. So God becomes a lesser of our priority. Now, I'm not saying that so that we have a full church. I'm saying that because this, this has eternal weight. We must have God first in our life for our own salvation. God must be there. He must be always before us if we want to be saved. Is that right? If God's not before you, if God's not who you're living for, if God is, is pretty much out of your life, do you still expect to be saved? Really? Come on, honestly. Because some people would put their hand up and say, I still expect to be saved. I still expect to be saved. And all I would say is, well, they're not reading the same Bible I'm reading. Or they're reading pet scriptures. Or they're listening to Joseph Prince. Or they're, they're listening to some other minister that preaches this stuff. But God's got to be first. Amen? Who knows that's the truth? Who knows it's a slap in the face when you hear it? Because we, we're, we're wrestling 
with, and, and I'm saying this because I do too, we're wrestling with worldly interests and worldly passions all the time. We're wrestling with them. And, you know, there might be, you know, should I pray right now? No, there's a really good movie, just come on TV. I'll watch that. And I'll pray after that. And then it's 12.30 when that movie finishes. And it's like, hmm, um, missed that one. You know what I mean? But it just can build and build and build. And I've seen it over and over and over again. So these sort of sermons, I, I feel we need to hear them. Is Jesus sufficient? Is he sufficient? 1 Thessalonians 4.14 We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. And I brought that scripture up for a reason. Is Jesus sufficient in this life? Well, he's sufficient in this life, but he's mostly sufficient for the next life. And when it comes down to it, when, when you weigh this life against the next life, when you weigh eternal life against, you know, say, 80 years of life here, what's, what's that like? Say you live eternity and just say you've lived for 10 billion years and you're still in eternity and you turn to each other and say, you know, we've just scratched the surface of eternity and it's been 10 billion years of eternity. When you, when you compare that against the little 80-year life that we have to live here for God, how does that compare? It's like, a, it's like nearly doesn't exist. It's like this time didn't even exist in comparison because, you know, 80 billion years or whatever is a huge length of time and 80 years is just a little speck of time in comparison. But we seem to emphasize this time so much and so we should because this is the time that matters in the sense of who Jesus chooses to spend the billions of years with. Who wants to spend billions of years with Jesus? Who wants that? Who wants to, when you die, who wants to know you're going to be with Jesus and spend billions and billions and billions of years? And who knows that the most pleasurable thing you could experience here on earth, Solomon and all his pleasures, the most pleasurable thing he experienced here on earth does not even compare with even the least of the pleasures in heaven. Amen? So who knows that, that we, we should have this foremost in our mind, kids included. Kids included. Because they, we all will be judged. It's not just the parents who are getting judged. It's not just me and mum who are getting judged. It's you guys as well. Everyone's going to be judged independently. And everyone's going to be weighed independently. And of the moment that a child becomes old enough to make a decision, do I love Jesus with all my heart or do I don't really care? As soon as someone can make that decision, they're held accountable from that moment forward. I don't know when that happens. For some kids that happens. I've got a child that I teach piano to and he's like 12 years old. And he debates with me about the existence of God. He uses all the, the arguments, you know, the apologetic arguments of, for, for atheism. And I'm astounded. He's 12 years old and he knows all these apologetic arguments. And I'm like, whoa, this kid's already accountable. 
This kid's 12 years old, and if he comes to judgment, he is going to be thrown into hell because he's chosen with all his mind to deny his existence. Now, if we're, if we're old enough to say, I love Jesus, we're also old enough to say, I don't care anymore for Jesus. So everyone is accountable. Everyone from that moment. When's the moment of non-accountability? Is a little child. A little child that doesn't know. And some years ago, a child wouldn't think about these things for up to 15 years old nearly. But slowly that's changed, isn't it? Kids are getting exposed to more and more things at younger and younger ages. And so they have to make a decision. Kids have to make a decision earlier these days. So parents, we've got big jobs. We've got to help our kids to believe and be passionate for the truth. Because if, if something happens, you know, they will stand before the God of gods and the King of kings and will have to give an account. Do you believe? Jesus will look at them. You, you had enough uh, knowledge and understanding and intellect to reject me or not care for me or not love me or even think it was a fairy tale and I just humored my parents to go along to church. You know, But at the moment I get to 18, I'll give it up, don't worry. I'm not going to be going to church as soon as I hit 18. That's it for me. I'm out of here. How many kids do that? A lot of kids, especially. Do you know the biggest drop-off in youth uh, is, has been in this generation? <clears throat> the church has lost more youth in this generation than, than any other generation in the history of the church. Like that's kids that grew up in Christian families. They're dropping off like flies. I reckon in America the backsliding rate of children is just enormous. Enormous. That's a, that's a frightening thing. You know, it's more evidence that I believe that we're living in the last days, that we're living in the time before Jesus returned. So as parents, and I'm looking at Ben and Soph because I know they're parents, and I'm looking at Bill and Vina and me, and your, your kids are already old enough to, they've got their own children. Yeah. And you guys aren't married yet, so, yeah. But, and you've got children, and they're both grown up, aren't they, Elizabeth? And I'm looking at another parent over here. You've got plenty of kids. and You've got, you've got a lot of prayer to do. We've all got a lot of pray, prayers to do. We've got to be like Vina's grandma. You know, I want you to come in here one day and show me your knees. <laughs> Say, look what I've been doing for my kids. <laughs> you know, and who knows? It depends on that. Stephen, you have children? Yes, two. We've got to be praying for them, don't we? And Lena, of course, there's one of them right here. Yep. Um, so we've got to pray, guys. We've got to pray and make sure that our kids stay saved, that they accept Jesus and they, 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 they realize, they have that major revelation that this is more important than anything else that they place their stress upon or put interest into. Because there's nothing. You, you think about it. You die, okay? Who, who knows that happens all the time? All right, that's one thing I, I've got over an atheist. I can say, well, death is, is true, it happens. They say, yeah, we can't deny death, but we, we, we don't know where we go from that point. But according to Scripture, you die. Everyone's going to die, amen? 
It's, it's a common thing. Unless the Lord returns. So you die. And that, at that moment, it says that you, are, you will face judgment. It says it's destined for a man to die once. There's no such thing as reincarnation. Destined for a man to die once and after that too, face judgment. You'll be judged according to what you have done. Now, with that in mind, you should actually carry that through each and every one of your days. You should live with that uppermost in your mind. Not to mean that you become this morbid person that you know, thinking about death all the time, but you should live as if the, th um, the judgment seat of God is just before you and you've got to do everything to make your judgment better. Because I'll tell you why. When you do one day die, there's nothing that's going to be more important to you at that moment than thinking, I wish I lived a better life. Who knows that even the Apostle Paul more than likely felt that way the moment he died. That he would have said to himself, I could have done so much more. You know, the Schindler's List thing. I've got this ring, I could have got some more. You know, you, you could do more. Who knows you could do more? Who knows you could pray more? Who knows you could read the scriptures more? Who knows you could reach out to people more? Who knows you could put God first more? Who knows there is so much more you can do? And the moment you die, you're going to wish that you could come back and live your life over again and do it all again, but this time fully committed. So why do I preach this now? So you don't have that regret. <laughs> I want to preach it now so you can get on fire for God and say, I'm going to live for him with all of my being now so that when I die, I don't have a regret. I don't have to think, I wish I could go back and start it all over again. So you've got to keep Jesus foremost in your mind. You've got to keep the judgment seat of Christ uppermost in your mind. And like Leonard Ravenhill said, keep one eye on eternity at all times. One eye on eternity. Stay focused. Stay focused. Because it's so easy as Christians, we are, getting, we are getting swept away by a flood of filth in this world. Satan is deceiving the best of us. He's consuming us and occupying us with so many things. There are so many things to do. Aren't there? You know, you go home and you've you got your list of really fun things you're going to go and do. And you pull your computer out and the next thing you know, eight hours is gone. You've just, sh just poured it into a computer doing all these things that you're just hanging out to do. And where's Jesus? He gets left to last, as always, as always. But the moment we turn this around, if we turn this around, he'll turn your life around. If you put Jesus first and you start putting him first regularly and you start living for him regularly, you watch what he starts to do to you. He'll start to change you. He'll start to make you more effective. You know, we'll come to church, and if we're all praying for this church, we'll come to church, and the presence of God will be so powerful in this place through the unity of us. You know, we have, we have quite a few people that are, say, they're committed members to this church. If they were all here right now, we would have two times what we've got now. But they're not here because their hearts aren't committed to God. And in many respects, a lot of us feel that way. You know, 
you nearly feel like Sunday, it would be great if I could blow off this Sunday, do my own thing, so I could have my Sunday. But isn't that the least we could do for God? He asks just one day in the week, just a few hours in the morning, and if Rob shuts up, you know, it won't go more than two hours. You know what I mean? Is that, a, is that a small thing to give back to God? A small thing just to dedicate that special morning, Sunday morning, and not go out to breakfast with your friends or something, you know? But people have trouble with that. They have trouble with giving that little bit to God. And you know, this is a, a relatively recent phenomenon. 20, 20 years ago, and Andy and Sharon can testify to this, that they didn't see this sort of thing occurring. They didn't see people come one week and, and, and not come for months and then come again and that sort of thing. And I'm not saying that to anyone in particular. I just, it's, it's you know, we all do it. So God's got to be first. And then he will turn your life around. Then he will change your life. Then he will make the, help you to live the life that you're meant to live. And then you'll start to become effective as a Christian. You'll start to win people into the kingdom. And, and your prayer life will become so active that you'll start to see things take place when you pray for people. You know, if we start to live for him, and this is what this sermon's about, and I'm, I'm pretty much nowhere near touched the surface of this sermon, but I'm, I hope I'm, I'm getting the message across. I'm looking at the time, it's 11.40, and I, I'm not going to go much further. Uh, no, no, I won't. I won't read that scripture. But um, who's received what I'm, what I'm saying today? I know I'm a little bit all around the place, but I, I get up here and I just ask the Holy Spirit, just lead me, just lead me and, and um, help me to say it in a way that's going to reach everyone's heart. And so sometimes I end up preaching about things that I never, well, most of the time I preach about things I never plan to preach about. But we, I really feel a pressing need, and this morning I was here early praying, and just God really impressed upon me that if his people commit, he will do incredible things in our midst. But because the people don't commit, he's unable to do incredible things in our midst. You know, if, if you really sincerely with all your heart want to see souls come into the kingdom, if you want to see people flocking here to get saved, then commit. Commit to praying for the church. Commit to, for, and, and for this particular church, the church you call home. Commit to praying for it. Commit to praying for me. Commit to praying for each other. You know, lift up each person in this church. Write a list of all the people that you remember their names from in this church. Start praying for them. Pray that I will speak the truth. If you don't like what I preach, pray about it. Say, God, soften Rob's heart, will you? You know? And we can cover over a multitude of sins just through the act of love. Right? If you love Jesus enough, if you love each other enough, this is not a tough thing to do. So if we're not doing that, it's because we need to pray, God, give me love. Give me a loving heart so that I would pray and I would, I would beseech you every single day. And I pray this as well. Lord, help me to love you more. Help me to love you more so that I can just devote myself to you in prayer all the time. Amen. Right, thank you, Jesus. Lord, 
Lord, I just pray that you just do something with that message, Lord. I pray that you help all of us here to really take a hold of it. I pray anything that I may have said that if, if someone doesn't understand or, or uh, doesn't like it, I pray that they forgive me. But I also pray that they'll pray for me and I'll pray for this church and pray for, for each other and that through their commitment and their love for this church and for each other that we'll grow and become the church we're meant to be, Lord. We need you, Lord Jesus, to move in our midst. We need your spirit here to move and touch our hearts and our lives. We need you to cause us to uh, wrestle with you and, and, and to secure the victory through prayer. We need you to guide us through the scriptures. We need you to guide our every day, help us to be holy, help us to be the righteous people we're meant to be, help us to prioritize you, help us to put you first and not have, have you on the bottom of the heap, Lord, but put you at the top. Lord, help us to change and become the people you're meant to be because, Lord, you died on that cross 2,000 years ago. You loved us so much that you laid down your life for us. As John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever should believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And, Lord, we want to have everlasting life. So please help us to secure our salvation in you and follow you and not look to the right or to the left, but stay on that narrow road that leads to life and help us to not fall off it. Help us to not get distracted, Lord, but help us to stay strong and firm and steadfast as we pursue you in this Christian life. And I pray this in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.